Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This is season four, and yes, it's episode 100. Woo! It's a wild, wild scene and party here at Music Makers and Soul Shakers HQ in Nashville. Well, the truth is, it's me and my faithful pup, Ringo, who is asleep in the corner. So uh, I'm still moving, which is a little bit crazy. Uh, I'm, I'm just living in a couple of empty rooms right now, and I'm working out of a studio that my friends own and operate, which is where I'm getting my work done these days, which is very nice and kind of them to give me some space. And uh, here at the podcast, I'm just sort of uh, making do with what I have, work, uh, doing some editing and recording out of home and doing stuff at the studio when I need to. So uh, after this milestone 100th episode, I'm going to take a little bit of a break, a couple weeks probably, and just um, chill on this for a bit while I try and get set up in a new place. We're Actually, we don't even know where we're moving. We're probably just moving across town to East Nashville, but we don't really know yet for sure, and we're just trying to sell our place. So there's all that fun stuff going on. Anyway, thank you for tuning in. My guest today is John Oates, legend John Oates. It's great to have him here. Today's episode, as all our episodes, are brought to you by our sponsors, Union Tube and Transistor, making killer pedals out of Vancouver. Also from Vancouver, Black Mountain Picks, making very cool spring-loaded thumb picks. Uh, Also, you know, I just want to shout out to another sponsor we had earlier on in the podcast, way back in the first season, Ear Trumpet Labs. And since we're at 100 episodes, and I guess this is going to kind of mark the end of season four, I'd just like to shout out to those guys, too, making amazing microphones. They're killing it these days, making all kinds of cool stuff. So check out Ear Trumpet Labs, too, and we thank them for their support over the years. So also to mark the 100th episode, we're going to do a fun giveaway. And it is going to include, well, the grand prize is going to include a union tube and transistor pedal, a couple of thumb picks from Black Mountain Picks, and a Music Makers and Soul Shakers t-shirt. There will be a couple runner-up prizes as well of thumb picks and t-shirts, but the grand prize is going to include the amazing Union Tube pedal. So if you want to get in on the giveaway, here's what you do. First, go to Apple Podcasts and you leave a review of the show. You put in some stars and you just leave a sentence or two reviewing the show. Then head over to the Facebook page of Music Makers and Soul Shakers 
and just comment on this episode, the John Oates episode, that you have done that, and you will be entered to win the grand prize, which will be given away as soon as we're back for season five, which will be a few weeks from now. Make sure to visit us also at our fairly new website, makersandshakerspodcast.com. And of course, as I always let you know, I can always use your help. And that includes now too, even in a little bit of downtime, while we just get things going, there's still going to be a, a lot of work and hosting going on and editing and all that fun stuff. And the podcast, as you know, is listener supported, essentially. And if you feel like and you're able to contribute, we can always use your help to keep the show going. So you can do that a couple of ways. One is through a Patreon subscription, which is a monthly contribution of your choice, or by a one-time donation. Both are really easy to do. Just visit our website at makersandshakerspodcast.com. And up in the top right corner is a donate button, and both those options will be available to you. Uh, Also, I'd like to mention starting next week, Monday, in fact, well, depending on when you're hearing this, but it's going to be October the 12th, I have a new podcast that I've kind of been talking about a little bit. It's a really fun and unusual project, and it's a podcast called One Life featuring Jim Burns. Um, Jim is an incredible soul and blues vocalist uh, from St. Louis originally, but he moved to Vancouver in the 70s. Uh, He's had an incredible life. He's been an actor in TV and movies, uh, shows like Highlander and Wise Guy, which many people know. And he's been a a fixture on the Canadian music scene for a long time, making uh, cool records with me and uh, doing all kinds of stuff. He spent a good chunk of time in Vietnam fighting over there and came back and lost both of his legs in a in a terrible car wreck on Vancouver Island. This is back in the early 70s. And he's just had an incredible life. And I thought it would be cool to document that. So he came into the studio when I was set up making another record. And uh, we had him just sit there and tell stories. And the band that I was that I had assembled for the record, just improvised around him telling stories. And this went on for two days, hours and hours. And I did a little bit of editing of it, but basically it's just him talking off the top of his head and me and the guys improvising. And it's been broken up into 10 episodes and they're all going to come out at once. So you can just jump in and immerse yourself in that. So it's called One Life podcast featuring Jim Burns and you can subscribe now for free and if you do on the 12th of October all the episodes will be downloaded to your device so please check that out and let us know what you think Uh, also I should mention due to my moving situation I've had some orders for t-shirts and things this week and I greatly appreciate that there are t-shirts still for sale but I've uh, all our t-shirts are actually locked up in a storage locker and I can't really get to them so those orders are languishing and I apologize for that. So I've just told everyone they can uh, either get their money back immediately and we'll just cancel the order or they can wait with me while I figure out where I'm going to live and uh, get all my stuff back at which point I can ship those t-shirts. So thanks for hanging in there. And also many thanks to our supporters this week, Lee Warden, Hugh Phillips, and Stephen Kaplan. Now Stephen Kaplan wants me to mention he is contributing a hundred bucks to the show And if anybody else does that, he will match it again. So I don't know. I'm not getting involved in that, but that's very generous and nice. And he wanted me to mention that. So there you go. Okay, John Oates, come on. You all know who he is. You don't need me to tell you that much about him, do you? He was part of Hall & Oates, for Christ's sake. Um, John's been here in Nashville for a number of years, and I've seen him around at various shows. Sometimes he sits in with the time jumpers. I've seen him do that. 
once at least, maybe twice. He's just a killer singer and he's still got tons of energy too. And he's doing lots of music these days. And I would just like to shout out to Guthrie Trapp, his guitar player, for putting me in touch with John. And uh, also remind you to go and check out my interview with Guthrie from a couple months back. He's a character and one monster of a guitar slinger. Anyway, John's been making records since 1966, which is amazing. But it's his new projects that he's most excited about. And so we get into all of that here today. His recent band is a collection of some of the greats on the scene here in Nashville, and they're called the Good Road Band. And it includes Sam Bush. Sometimes I think Sam obviously is not available all the time, but when he's around, Guthrie Trap on guitar, monster, Russ Paul, killer, steel player. Uh, who else is in that band? Nate Smith is on cello. And there's some other guys who I'm not, I don't know. Anyway, they've just released a, a killer live record. It's called Live in Nashville, and it includes songs from their recent record, Arkansas, and some originals of John's, and some covers by Mississippi John Hurt, Jimmy Rogers, Don Gibson. So, oh, another thing I've always been fascinated about, too, is that John owns Mississippi John Hurt's guitar, and John Hurt is a huge inspiration for me, so I wanted to get the scoop on that axe, too. So it was great to hear some of the stories about that and of him growing up and getting into the scene in Philly and New York and Holland Oates' early career, which goes back so long, like way longer than a lot of people realize. The big 80s hits were kind of off the table. He didn't want to talk about that stuff. So we just talked early history and then lots about his uh, recent work here in town. So you can get the scoop on John and the latest Live in Nashville record at johnoates.com. And, you know, I'm sure he'll be out on the road when that's back on the table, but until then, you can check out what he's up to and buy the new record there, find out what's happening. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with John Oates. Well, she called me up down in hell by so she said, come back down. Obviously, you've had a long and like really interesting career, but you've been a recording artist since, as far as I can tell, 1966 was the first time you set foot in the recording studio. So that's, um, I don't know if you're counting, John, but that's 54 years that you've been a recording artist. Yeah, I try, I try not to count, but yeah, I hear you. Um, and, yeah, I, uh, I, I, should, I should know my way around a uh, control room at this point. Yeah, huh? no doubt. I mean, from my observation, like I, I, I live in Nashville now. I'm from Vancouver, Canada, and um, but I moved here about seven or eight years ago. And, um, you know, I've seen you around. I've seen you at the with playing with the time jumpers and and just sort of around town here and there. And it seems like you're having a, a ball these days. And, um, you know, I'd like to talk to you about a lot of your older experiences, but Maybe you could just tell me a bit about how your outlook on recording has changed over the years. And am I reading that right? That that now when you go in to make a record, it's it just seems like a lot of fun for you. And there's not like the pressure that there may have been years ago for you. Well, you know, I, I never really saw the recording process as ha I was never felt pressure, pressure in the recording process, even back in the heyday and when Hall & Oates you know, from the time Daryl and I started to uh, even in the 80s when we were cranking out these hits, you know, we were very uh, independent. You know, we almost, it's as it doesn't seem like, you know, you wouldn't imagine it, but even during our 80s, you know, when we were hot as, as could be, we acted like in, indie artists. We right. we recorded 
the way we wanted to record. We never allowed, actually never even allowed record company people to come into the studio while we were recording. Uh, when we were done and we felt we had the finished product, we'd hand it, hand it to them and say, here you go. Uh, and that includes the album covers, the whole thing. So in a way, you know, uh, being an independent artist has always been kind of what we, what I've always done and what Daryl and I have always done. Uh, so carrying that over to today and my Nashville experience, it's, it's very similar. Uh, you know, I, I don't have a label affiliation. I have my own record label, a custom label that I've released things through Warner Nashville. Um, and I've also did, you know, my last record came out on 30 tigers, but basically it's under my imprint. So I do, you know, I, I have the, the, the creative freedom to do what I like to do and how I like to do it, which is, uh, you know, I guess in a sense, I feel like I've earned that, you know, after all those years, as you said, 50 plus years. (laughs) So, um, that's you know I walk into the studio with uh, with an open palette creative creatively and and mentally you know uh, I I I feel like you know in Nashville I've got this you know this incredible resource you've got this incredible city full of amazing talented people who and 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 when I say that I mean on every level from the players to the engineers and to the the people who repair instruments yeah. and, and so on and so forth. You've got like everyone is is a pro and everyone is on the top at the top of their game, uh, and I love that. You know, um, I'm a big I'm a big fan of professionalism. I, right. I like I like people who are on time. I like people who show up and you know and have their their shit together. Um, that's just my style, and uh, you know, and this is a whole Nashville is a whole town full of them, and uh, it's wonderful. I mean, you know, when I some years ago I, I got a chance to record with Vince Gill and. Um, you know, he said something to me that really stuck with me, you know, plus I'm a huge Vince fan. Um, you know, he said to me, he said, you know, when you're in Nashville and you're producing a record, he said, you're like the director of a movie. He said, it's not about who's the best guitar player for the, for the time <laughs> the song or who's the best bass player or drummer. It's about who, who's the perfect personality and character and talent for that moment and that song absolutely so he says you're it's almost like you're casting a movie you know casting the actors in a movie yeah um and it really sunk home to hit home to me and being able to pull from this incredibly uh, deep uh well of of talent is just amazing was that the intention when you made the move to nashville like were you were you looking to have a fresh start here in a new environment with with like-minded people or was it just like a some other reason that brought you here? Well, I, you know, I came, I came to Nashville in the nineties during a period of time when Daryl and I were not touring very much and not recording hardly at all. Uh Um, I wanted to, you know, I was living in Colorado and, uh, you know, living in the mountains, but kind of isolated from a music community in a way. And so uh, through, through some mutual friends, you know, they said, Hey, you should come to Nashville, write some songs and blah, blah, blah. So I came, I came to Nashville and stuck my toe in the water and, um, you know, I tried to write some country songs that didn't really work out very well. You know, I, I, I learned pretty quickly. It just wasn't something that I just had the right blood. It wasn't, it really, uh, you know, as much as I, I love country music and I love especially traditional country music. Yeah. Um, it just wasn't something I was good at, you know, simple as that. And I thought, you know, but, but at the same time, I, I realized how, you know, how much fun it was to record with these great musicians. So little by little, I began to come back more and more and I began to write more and more, uh, and eventually, back in 2010, uh, my wife and I got a place here, mm-hmm. and uh, I was doing an album with Mike Henderson, 
uh, called Mississippi Mile and realized that I was spending more money on flights, rent-a-cars, and hotels than I was on the record. Uh, and so my wife went out one day while we were recording. She found an apartment down the gulch, and uh, yeah. we bought it, and um, we were there for a number of years, and then we, we finally moved into a house uh, later on. just one of those things where we just you know we began to feel at home and and especially when i began to hang out with the americana community sir yeah. uh sam bush and jerry douglas and guthrie trap and and uh mike henderson you know uh jim lauderdale when i began to hang out with those guys i felt like i had found some kindred spirits who mm-hmm. i could do what i kind of wanted to do and they they understood it and they could help me and I could be part of a community. And that, that Americana community has been an important part of my whole solo career. Yeah. It's a real, it is a real thing here. It's a, it's a strong community and, and uh, it's doing a lot of good things. Um, you, you mentioned Guthrie Trap and, and I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about some of the, the recent characters you've been playing with here in town, like on a regular basis. I know Guthrie's one of them and, and uh, he's the reason that uh, I've got you on the show today. And yeah. Um, uh, you know, maybe you could just talk a little bit about the process as far as making um, some of the recent records and, and like Arkansas was, that was two, probably two years ago now or something that you made that, but uh, just a little bit about the current crop of musicians that you play with and, and how that's been influenced by the, the Nashville scene. Well, the, the band that, that recorded Arkansas, I've, I've, uh, I've dubbed them the good road band. And um <laughs> It really was a, it was a, it was a process of elimination and a process of uh, playing with different people at, in different configurations mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of finding the, the, the kindred spirits along the way. Um, Guthrie was one of the first. Uh, I first heard Guthrie play back in, uh, oh, shoot, I guess it was probably the 2007 or six or something like that when he was playing with Jerry Douglas at, at Telluride Bluegrass Festival. Right. He blew my mind, and uh, I, I just loved his playing, and he and I hit it off as, as people, as friends, and so we, we played a little bit. You know, I'd, I'd kind of jam with him and uh, here and there, or he'd sit in with me, but it wasn't very, uh, you know, we didn't really formalize anything. And then uh, little by little, I, you know, gathered, you know, uh, found Steve Mackey, who's an amazing bass player, and eventually Josh Day. Um, who I was looking for a percussionist, and he started out as a percussionist and eventually became a drummer and a percussionist with me. And then the, 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 you know, the, the, the community of musicians began to expand. Uh, Sam Bush was one of the first guys I got to, to hang out with. Well, anyway, so little by little, I began to assemble these guys. We, we started doing some live shows, um, you know, in different configurations, trios. And Guthrie and I would play together, and then we'd add, 
you know, Mac, Mackie on bass. Yeah. And then we'd add Josh and become a trio. We did some acoustic unplugged type stuff. So the, it, it, it just began to gel. I mean, we all enjoyed hanging and uh, the, the, the playing got better and better. And then we added Russ Paul and Pedal Steel. Right. And then, you know, uh, of course, Sam Bush, you know, he has his own band, so he's not exactly available. But whenever he was, you know, we'd ask him to play. And, you know, Sam is so great. He loves to sit in and jam. So He sure does. Uh, so little little that, that came together. Walk along the lake, silhouetted by a crescent moon. When the sun starts rising, hitting 94, the clock strikes noon. Don't you know the days and nights? Dreams drift slowly. So what happened was uh, for the Arkansas project was very unique because it didn't really. Um, I started out that the 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 whole idea of that record was to make a tribute to Mississippi John Hurt, mm-hmm. and the idea was I would go in the studio with an acoustic guitar and just my, just just me and do all these songs because he was a childhood hero of mine. I know all his material and I can play the songs. And, and so I recorded three or four things and then and I sat back and listened to it and thought about it. And I said, well, you know, it's been done before. The, you know, the original is always better. Why am I doing this? But at the same time, I didn't want to abandon the idea of these songs because I like the song so much. So I, I thought one night I was, I kind of had a dream and I said, I wonder what these songs would sound like if they were played with a band because they're always associated with that Delta blues, you know, of course, yeah. guitar player, singer and a guitar player. You know what I mean? Yeah. I ask you, baby, Coming home, my head. Ask you, baby. Coming home, my head. And I said, wonder what would happen if we reimagined these songs with a band. And then I thought, and and not just a regular band. Let, let's. I wanted to put together something unique that that sonically had its own uh, personality. So I I really ha- I'm a big fan of this guy Nat Smith and Nathaniel Smith. He's a cello player. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard him play at Music City Roots, and he blew my mind, and I, I got together with him. We jammed at my house, and he's just a genius, and he's he's amazing, soulful cello player. Doesn't doesn't play like a normal cello player. Um, and then, uh, you know, Russ Paul, who's probably one of the most innovative pedal steel players in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does things on a pedal steel that aren't, that go way beyond just normal country, you know, style yeah, pedal steel. Um, so... And then I thought if I could get Sam involved, you know, Sam brings an energy and a, and a groove that, you know, is, he just has something that's very special. So I assembled these guys in the studio, um, this odd combination of, you know, drums, bass, electric guitar, Guthrie, of course, yeah. Sam, cello and pedal steel. And I wanted the cello and the pedal steel to function as kind of as an almost like a, a, an orchestra. Okay. I wanted them to be the the orchestral pad behind everything. Interesting. And the tonality of of, of a cello against the tonality of the pedal steel is very unique. It's it's really cool. I'm 
I took one of the classic um, Mississippi John Hurt songs, uh, Stacko Lee, which um, I had played with, with uh, Guthrie and, and those guys. And I said, come on, let's just play it together as a band. And I didn't really give them much direction. I just said, well, let's play this thing. And so I played what I normally would have played if I would have just been me and the guitar. Yep. I did my normal Mississippi John Hurt thing. So if, and they began to play. And that the sound was incredible. It was this very unique thing that I had never heard from before. And then when we were done that song, I remember our my co-producer, David Kalmuski, and he's an engineer and co-producer with me. We sat back and listened to it. He said, and this was his exact words. He said, John, I don't know what this is, but it's really cool. And you should just keep doing it. <laughs> and I went, okay. <laughs> so that day, I think we cut three tracks. Um, and we came in a few more times and finished the album with that exact same uh, configuration. And the sound was unique and original and uh, amazing. And uh, I didn't, you know, we didn't have to think too much. It was, you know, trust the, what they do and uh, just guide the process, really. That's the best kind of session when you don't have to like overly get analytical about the direction mm -hmm. of the playing and, and people just sort of fall into place and and come up with something original. There's no shortage right. of that. Right. When you hire you hire you know, you bring these guys together because you know that's what they're going to bring to the table that, you know. Yeah. And they they and above and beyond the playing, you know, in you know, the the the, the higher level of, of musicianship has a lot to do with listening. Right. Um how 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 the players listen to each other so that what they're doing can enhance and augment the the playing of the other people it's a it's it's really when when you take musicianship to a very high level you mentioned cal muskie were you working at addiction yeah cool. yeah that's where i work all the time right on um that's that's a great place Oh, of course, you being a Canadian, of course, all Canadians know each other. <laughs> That's right, we do. I figured, out, I figured that out eventually, because every time I talk to Cal Muskie about something, I, I'd, or I'd run into some, somebody on the street and they go, oh, I'm from Canada. I said, oh, you must know David Cal Muskie. <laughs> Everyone knows Dave. Yeah, he seems to know every Canadian in Nashville. Yeah, he sure does. <laughs> Can you tell me a bit about how, like, how were you actually set up in there? Was everybody in one room? Is that how you did that record? Yeah, totally organic. Um, we set up live. We played that album. I mean, the Arkansas album is as close to a live performance as you can get in a recording studio. Yeah. There, there are hardly any overdubs at all. Um, there's just great playing, and we captured the track. And I was singing live. Uh, about I would say 60 or 70% of the vocals are me singing live while we cut the track. Yeah. And then I might have gone in and fixed a few things, you know, and, 
and re-sang a few things. Um, but basically, uh, what you hear on that album is the band playing in the studio, and then that's it. Do you find that the Mississippi John Hurt style that you had worked on all, all those years and that, that you were used to doing as a solo artist, when you were playing with that dense of an instrumentation, did you have to like ease up on the right hand stuff at all with, with what you oh, were doing? Oh, no, that's, just keep that's the beauty of it. it, it I didn't change a thing. I didn't do anything different than I would have done had I recorded the whole album by myself. Okay. And it's funny, it's funny if you strip away all the music on the record, it's just me playing Mississippi John Hurt songs. Right. Uh, and so actually I've been thinking for social media to, to promote the new live album that's coming out in September. Um, I am going to do a breakdown where I'm going to play exactly what I did on the record and do a social and on social media and do a breakdown of, of what I was actually playing behind all this great musicianship. It's a very cool project, and and you're right. Like the, I've, I'm, I'm a steel player as well, and and that that sonic marriage of steel and cello, like it's a it's a unique sound, and it's and it works really yeah. well. Mm-hmm. So that was your most recent record. Um, I wonder if you could talk to me about your maybe your first session. Which um, so as far as I can find out, I need your love was the first session that you ever did that was back in 66 can you recall much about that actual session uh recall uh, yeah everything <laughs> <laughs> tell me about it well um it, it was my high school band um we went through a bunch of different names we ended up calling ourselves the masters around that time yeah. um we we were a fairly popular band in this little town that i lived in pennsylvania we played fraternity parties and clubs and things like that uh, we had horns you know we had a trombone and a saxophone um, and we had drums, bass, and we had an organ. Mm-hmm. It was like a, you know, kind of an R&B combo, I, I call it. Yeah. Um, and uh, we'd, we'd, gathered, we'd gathered up some money, and we uh, decided we wanted to make a record. I, I wrote a song with, uh, with our bass player and um, went down to Philadelphia and booked some time at a studio called uh, Virtue Sound. It was owned by a guy named Frank Virtue who uh, had, had a big hit in the 50s called Guitar Boogie Shuffle. Right. It was an in- instrumental. And um, he had a little studio on North Broad Street in Philadelphia. We went in, paid the money, um, and we recorded these two songs. And afterwards, I remember he said something to us like, hey, you guys are pretty good, but, you know, you need, you need some help. Because we had no idea. We'd never been in a recording studio. Yeah. We didn't know what we were doing. Um, and he said, call this guy. Maybe he can help pull this together for you. So um, the guy, he gave us the number of, um, 
um, shoot, I'm trying to remember his name now. Um, he was he he actually ended up becoming a Grammy winning uh, arranger for Gamble and Huff. Oh wow, okay. Bobby Martin, Bobby Martin. Okay. He he arranged uh, he arranged Backstabbers, Love Train, wow, all sorts of big giant hits. Um, so we went down and uh, to his little office in Philadelphia, downtown Philadelphia, and he had this little tiny office with an upright piano. What was he at the at the time? He was just an an arranger or a producer or something. Yeah, he was an arranger, you know, yeah. arranger, producer, songwriter. Who knows what he was, you yeah. know? Um, but uh, we paid him. You know, we paid him. I think it was like a hundred bucks. Yeah. And um, we went in there, and I played him the song on the acoustic guitar, and he wrote a chart out. Um, he said, all right, I'll get, uh, he goes, I'll pull this together for you. And we, we booked another session at the same studio. Uh, I guess it was a few weeks later yeah. and, uh, that, you know, he came and, and supervised the session and he really helped us pull it together. He added an extra horn or two. So did you, um, re- were, you were you recutting the same song? Yeah. Recut oh, cool. the same song. Okay. But with him, you know, with him pulling it together and helping us on the arrangement and with a horn chart, the horn chart, you know, was, a, was much better and yeah. things like that. So, uh, yeah, but it was done on two track, you know, um, quarter inch two track. I mean, it was, you know, down and dirty. Uh, and, uh, so we had our record and, um, we had an A and a B side. We, we cut a, um, we cut an acetate in those days, you know, they, they, they would cut an acetate right there, you know, yeah. while you were, you know, recording basically, as soon as you were done the record, you just cut the acetate and we went and had a couple acetates made and we had them. And we didn't know what we were going to do. And there was a place downtown in Philadelphia on Chestnut Street called, uh, or Walnut Street, called the Record Museum. And they sold all 45s, everything from old doo-wop and, you know, obscure stuff like that. Um, and um, we went down there because uh, I used to go there anyway just to buy records and uh, walked in and um, there was a guy behind the counter. And I, I literally said to the guy, hey, we made a record. You want to hear it? <laughs> I said, yeah. So we gave him the acetate. He put it on the little 45, played it, and he went, hey, it's pretty good. He goes, "Uh, come on back, and went back into a back office, and he handed us a contract. Wow. And we signed it. Really? (laughs) Yeah. We we were so stupid. I mean, we (laughs) signed it. Um, He said, okay, we'll put it out on Crimson Records, which was their little label. They had put out a song. um, They only had one song that they put out, and it was Expressway to Your Heart by the Soul Survivors. Wow. Not bad. So they had a big hit, and um, we were the second release on Crimson Records. And uh, of course, you know, we sold all our rights away. We had no idea what we were signing. We just, hell, record contract? Damn, why not? Yeah. You know? Um, so that's got us uh, got us play on local Philadelphia radio, and you know, simultaneously, Daryl had done basically the same thing with some of the guys from Gamble and Huff, and he cut a record with his group, The Temptones. The Temptones, and, right? Yeah, and his his record and my record were being played at the same time on Philadelphia radio. What do you do when
So I was aware of him. He was aware of me. We had never met. Um, I saw them actually play at a show once. Uh, they were, you know, I thought they were really good. And then we ran into each other, and uh, we began to. A couple of the guys in my band got drafted into Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. His his group was kind of falling apart. He and I gravitated toward each other. And in the late sixties, we just hung out. We didn't really formalize anything. We didn't even work together. We yeah, you guys, we, you guys really circled each other's lives for quite a few years. Like I, I just finished yeah, reading your book, almost, and, and it seems yeah, like almost you, three years. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and it was just one of those things. Uh, you know, he was doing, he was working in a studio, and he was working in a club band. I was playing coffee houses, playing blues, and playing with some, you know, just random bands around Philadelphia, mm-hmm. uh, and. Um, I went to Europe, and when I came back, I had no place to live. And you probably read the story in the book, if you read the book. Yeah, um, yeah. I had no. Daryl's sister subletted my apartment and didn't pay the rent. So when I came back, it had a padlock on it. And so I showed up on Daryl's doorstep with a guitar and a backpack, going, "Hey, man, uh, I got nowhere to live." And he said, "You can live here." And uh, so. That was how it started. Yeah. What were your big early influences? Like obviously blues and, and country music play a, a role in, in your life, but also, um, you know, soul and R&B and like, what were the big ones for you? And especially growing up around the, the Philly area that, that and, and Jersey and stuff, there must've been a lot of local music that really um, kicked your ass. There were two amazing coffee houses, one second fret downtown and another one called the main point uh, slightly outside of the city. And they would bring in all the great performers of, of who are being rediscovered during that period of time. Everyone from the great blues legends to the folkies, you know, yep. Jim Quest's Jug Band, you know, uh, Joan Baez, uh, you know, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, you know, you name it, John Hammond Jr. They were all, everyone was playing this place. So I got to see all that. And at the same time, on Saturday nights, I would go to the Uptown Theater on North Broad Street, which was part of the Chitlin Circuit. Uh, you know, of the Howard Theater in, in Washington, the Apollo in New York, and, and the Uptown in Philly. Man, you must and have seen part some of the, stuff. Yeah, so I saw all the great, the greats, the, the great R&B performers of all time, you know, Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, Temptations, Smokey Robinson, you know, James Brown, you name it. And uh, I saw Stevie Wonder play Fingertips when you know he was oh twelve when, when that first came out. Yeah. So, so I was doing all of that at the same time and absorbing it all. And uh, I had this great uh, guitar teacher in who who was kind of he worked at one of the coffee houses downtown in Philadelphia. And when the, when these blues performers uh, would come to the city, you know they were these guys were you know never been to northern cities before. They had no money. They didn't know how to you know live or anything. And they would sleep on his couch, and I would get to see, you know, I'd walk in, there'd be Doc, Doc and Merle Watson, oh, there'd man. be John Hurt, and I, you know, I got to watch them play and watch their hands, and, you know, so I had this direct connection to it, and while the same, while I was doing that, directly across the street, there was a guy named Dick Waterman who became kind of the manager of a lot of these performers, yep. 
and Bonnie Raitt was his girlfriend. And so Bonnie was living at Dick's house, and so the same thing was happening to Bonnie. She'd be there, and, you know, Robert Pete Williams would be right. drunk on the couch. And in, <laughs> fact, in fact, one time Bonnie and I had to go out and find him. Um, but he had, they had, they lost him. Maybe he was, they figured he was in a bar somewhere. And we had a, we went, went around the, the, the neighborhood and we found him in a bar and had to bring him back. Oh my God. Um, mm-hmm. I'm gonna leave ya, baby. I'ma get the first thing going my way. I'ma leave you, woman. I reminded her of it when uh, I saw her at the Rock and Roll Hall thing show. She laughed and she was like, "I can't believe that you remembered that." So um, yeah, so I mean, this was all happening at the same time. So I have a, you know, I have this firsthand experience with. Well, you know, I consider to be the golden age of, of, of American roots music. Yeah, that's incredible. And, and I can draw from that, you know, in, in what I do now. And I don't want to, you know, I can't, you know, I don't feel like I should be replicating it. Or I'm, in a sense, I'm, I'm, I'm replicating it from its origins, but reimagining it. And mm-hmm. that's what I try to do with the Arkansas record. So the teacher you mentioned, that was that Jerry Ricks? Yeah, Jerry Ricks. He owned Mississippi John Hurt's guitar, right? Right. Well, when John... Jerry became Mississippi John Hurt's kind of road manager. So oh, okay. He would take him around, you know, and help him and make sure he got to places and things. When John died, uh, the guild that was given, when John Hurt came to New York, well, he came, he was invited to Newport Folk Festival in 63. Yeah. He didn't have a guitar, or if okay. he did, it wasn't any good. Um, so the people at Newport Folk Festival actually, um, they wanted to buy him a guitar. So they took him to New York, and I believe it was, Patrick Sky, uh, folk singer, yep. took him to um, a uh, someplace downtown in the village to buy a guitar, and he picked a Guild F30. Um, he said he picked it because he liked the color because <laughs> it was <laughs> the golden sunburst. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and they were. I remember they, they. I read somewhere where they were surprised that he didn't pick a more expensive guitar like a Gibson or a Martin or something. Right. You know. But he just liked that guitar, and he picked it. And that's the guitar you see him playing at the first his first Newport um, thing. When he died, uh, that guitar was given to Jerry, and Jerry had that guitar in in, 19, in the early seventies when Daryl and I were getting ready to record mm-hmm. our first albums uh, in New York. I asked Jerry to play on, with me on a couple tracks, and uh, he said, "Do you want me to bring the John Hurt guitar?" And I said, "Absolutely." So, on the first two Hall and Oates albums, I'm playing the John Hurt guitar. That, oh wow. Um, now flash forward to now uh, a few years later a mutual friend had found that guitar in an estate in Denver because Jerry had sold it when he was uh, working as a guitar teacher in Denver in the mid 70s and um, it was it remained in a guy's collection for all these years and the guy passed away and Mm -hmm. uh, his daughter sold it and I bought it and now I have it amazing that guitar has got some serious mojo man Oh, serious! It's so funny. <laughs> the guy who the guy who was helping out with the sale of the estate, he's a folk, folky from Denver. He said, he says, funny. Every time anyone picked up the guitar, the first song they played was Creole Bell. Right. And it's, it's funny. I did the same thing. Really? I, without even knowing it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make my my darling baby my Creole Bell. 
There's a great story in your in your book about uh, meeting and playing with Doc Watson. Do you, do you mind just recounting that a little bit? That was part of that same period of time. Um, you know, uh, I was I was with Jerry, and uh, Jerry said, uh, "Oh, you know, Doc and Merle are playing at the main point, which was a coffee house right outside of the city." And uh, he couldn't go for some reason. I guess he was busy or whatever. And he said, "You should just go, and uh, you know, I'll let him know you're coming." And so I I had my guitar with me, and I went. Uh, took the train out to the, the, the suburbs, and uh, went to the there. Went down the basement, and uh, and they said, "Oh yeah, Jerry told me you guys you were coming." I got to play with him down in the basement, and uh, you know, and talk to him a little bit. And it was wow. a, it was a thrill for me. It was just an amazing experience. And then uh, after the show, I would I took the train back. It was late at night, and I got jumped on the street by three kids. Oh man, who who jumped me and <laughs> started beating the shit out of me. Uh, but I held on my guitar and I was whacking them with the guitar case <laughs> un- <laughs> until, until this guy came out of his house with a hammer. Uh, he, he heard, because I was yelling and there was yelling going on. This guy, I don't know who he was, he came out of the house with a hammer and these, the kids ran away and then the guy went straight back in the house and I never saw him again. Wow. I don't, it was just very weird. So uh, that, was, you know, that was one of those, <laughs> one, more, one more adventure. I left my mammy and pappy at just about the age of ten. Lord, I got me a job of working on the levee, toting water for the hard-working men. Walk on, boy. By the time you you did hook up with with Daryl, um, you know it's like the early '70s or 1970, probably or something like that. Is that around when you guys actually started? It was. It was exactly 19. It was. It was October of 1970 when I came back from Europe. It was October of 1970. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's actually really amazing to me that you guys first circled each other for a few years and then like you had just you had like an epically long career before even before you had like ma- like you had some success with the early records but like you know the massive success came like 13 14 years later that that's a long time to kind of yeah, s- well, sl- slug it out man <laughs> well you know we both Daryl and I are very similar in that we 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 were musicians from the time we were little children yeah. Uh, we never, you know, we weren't the kind of people, and, and I don't mean this in any derogatory way, but we didn't pick up our guitars when we heard the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and start, you know, wanting to be a rock star. We were, I mean, I was playing big band music when I was in the, in the early 50s, you know. Hmm. So, you know, it was, it, I, I, I mean, I, I remember music before rock and roll. I mean, I'm old enough to remember that and musically sensitive enough to realize that that's, music my parents played yep. uh, at home. And so to me, it was Benny Goodman and Glenn Miller and, you know, the Ink Spots and, and that kind of thing. Right. And then when rock and roll started, I remember, I, mean, I, I it was very distinct that there was something happening. There was some new thing happening. And, you know, it was Chuck Berry and Little Richard, and Elvis and all that. So 
You know, my, my musical experience started prior to rock and roll. And then as rock, so my, my really, you know, I mean, rock and roll started in the early 50s, you know. Now I'm, I'm five, six years old. I'm playing guitar at six. So now I'm, you know, kind of growing up with rock and roll. And and did you immediately take to it, or did you find it oh, yeah. kind of? Oh, you did. Okay, immediately it spoke to you. But uh, you know, of course, being you know a little kid, you know, the first songs you know that I started playing were country songs with three chords. You know, because yeah. well, again, most rock and roll songs were three sure. chords too. So uh, you know, so I started with the basics. You know, they're basic, simple Chuck Berry stuff. Like Don Gibson, Oh Lonesome Me, was one of the first songs I played and sang awesome. at the same time, which I just recorded, by the way, and it's on the live album. Oh, cool. Kind of. By the time you guys hooked up and started started playing together, there there was a, an interesting guy in your book, John Madera, that seemed to have like a, a real, um, you know, like a, a guidance, but also like he sort of loomed over your career in those early days. Was he like a was he like a manager for you, or what was his role exactly? Well, you know, it, he was he was typical of the old old the old music business. Yeah, know, he which seems really old school. In, I like that guy. In, in, <laughs> in some ways, it, it has changed. And in some ways it had right. um, He had a success in the early 60s in, with the Cameo Parkway label, oh. which was the was label of the teen idols of Philadelphia. Fabian, okay. Frankie Avalon, Bobby Rydell, uh, Len Barry, uh, Chubby Checker. And uh, he had some hits that he had written. And uh, he had a little office on North Broad Street in the Schubert Theater building. And Leon, Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff had an office a few floors above him on the same building. Amazing. And they were just starting out as kind of teenagers. And um, Did you know those guys? Sure. We grew up with them. Okay. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> so we were working in the same building. So basically, Daryl had met uh, some, pe- some guys who were working with this guy, John Madeira. And Daryl brought me along into the, in there. And he signed us both as songwriters, as staff songwriters. And we... We worked for $25 a week and um, writing songs in a little office. And, you know, and he would walk by and um, he'd stick his head in every once in a while. And then we, next thing we know, a record would come out and his name would be on it. He's a co-writer. <laughs> That's right. That's how it worked. Um, um, so yeah, so <laughs> were artists cutting your songs at that time? We had a couple cuts. Yeah, I had, I had a song called Lady Rain, which I later recorded with Daryl, but that was cut by a group called The Moods. And there was, yeah, we, we had some very minor regional 45s that were cut. Um, Daryl had a few things that were cut by other people. Um, and we, we did recording sessions, sang background. I played acoustic guitar, that, you know, because they considered me the, you know, I was the token folky. So whenever there was an acoustic guitar needed, I played acoustic guitar. 
Um, so, you know, it was kind of a, it was that, that kind of thing. And eventually he tried to promote us as a act, as a recording act. Mm -hmm. And we would do these showcases. We would go to New York and take the train. You know, we'd take the train up to New York whenever Gamble, like Gamble and Huff had a session, we'd combine, you know, kind of trips together. Okay. And, uh, we'd go up there with Tommy Bell and they'd do the recording session. Daryl and I would do a session or we'd do a showcase at some little club and we'd get back to Philadelphia and we'd hear that, um, yeah, they, they, they liked you, but they passed. And we, we'd like, well, why did they pass? They seemed to like us. Oh, you know, he'd give us some the weird double talk. But we didn't realize behind our back he was asking for egregious amounts of money and outrageous. Oh, my God. You know, things, not, you know, us being, you know, completely brain dead to the, you know, the business side of things. Right. And eventually we had done this so many times and we couldn't figure out why everyone we'd play and people would go crazy. <laughs> and then nothing would happen and we right. couldn't figure it out. And so finally Daryl and I just said, this, this, we don't know what's going on, but we got to get out of Philadelphia. So we, we pulled our money together and we, um, we took a, uh, an airplane flight to, um, uh, Actually, we had fake IDs because we had both left college, but we still had our college IDs. Yeah. So we went and bought student half fare tickets using our fake IDs, <laughs> and um, we flew out to LA. And we had a, a, a we had a guy from Chapel Music uh, who was the publisher at the time that mm -hmm. we were involved, and he met us at the airport and took us to his house, and we slept on the on the floor. And um, he said he'd take us around, uh, and um, he took us to this guy who was a art dealer, but he was very good friends with Ahmed Erdogan. They were best friends. He was the art dealer for Ahmed Erdogan Amazing. back in New York. And we played a couple songs in, in his garden, literally in his backyard yeah. in West Hollywood, uh, right off Melrose, uh, right off of Santa Monica Boulevard. And every time we'd play a song, he burst out laughing <laughs> and we couldn't figure out what was going on. And then he, he, he because he was a really funny guy. He was a very unique kind of bohemian yeah. guy. And he, he said, are you guys for real? And we were like, well, yeah, this is what we do. And he was like, well, he goes, well, he goes why aren't you recording? And we said, well, nobody seems to like us. <laughs> and he, he said, well, I like you. <laughs> he, said, he said, I'm going to call Amit, and we're gonna, you're going to go to New York and play for him. And we said, okay. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so that's what he did. Um, and they set up a meeting. And it, well, I'm not, well, actually didn't go to the meeting. But Jerry Greenberg, who was the president of the company at the time, and uh, Mark Myerson, who's the head of A&R, mm -hmm. and Ar Arif Martin, who was the producer. Amazing. Um, we went into a little room, and we played our songs. And Arif stood up at the end of the thing. He says, I will produce them. And that was it. We were done. Wow. So, so literally, you're just in a room, and you, the two of you nobody else. Yeah. And you just did, played two yeah. or three songs. That was it. And that was it. Wow. And so, so that led to, um, a reef producing your, your first record. Can you tell first me a bit two. about first two? Right. So yeah. tell me a bit about working with him. Like, was he pretty hands-on and like, what was, what was your experience like with him? Well, we couldn't have been in better hands to to, for our first you know, time, major yeah. recording experience. Uh, the consummate, the, the consummate musician, uh, gentleman, and, uh, you know, just, uh, I, I just can't say enough about him. In fact, I w what, what I will say is that every recording session that I do, he, right, even today in Nashville, mm -hmm. I conduct it the way he conducted our first recording session. Wow.
I do exactly what he did. I mean, to me, he set the standard of, it's kind of a, you know, it's, it's basically what we talked about earlier in the conversation. The, the kind of hands-off approach of find the best players for the right moment, for the right song, let them do what they do and guide the process. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I do. Um, I try to conduct the, the sessions, you know, with, with a lot of good humor and, and, and a really easygoing atmosphere. And, you know, there's a lot to it. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of mental, you know, kind of, um, you know, reading people, knowing people's personalities and knowing how to get the best out of, out of someone. Yeah. Um, I learned it all from Maurice Martin. I mean, I can't, wow. you know, say enough about it. So, um, he, you know, he, I mean, if you look at the players on our first two records, it's ridiculous. I mean, we have Bernard Purdy. Bernard on, Purdy on drums, right? That's awesome. We, we've got, you know, we've got, we've got people like, uh, we had, you know, um, uh, Joe Farrell. I mean, the great jazz saxophone player. Amazing. Played on, played oboe and saxophone on, he's the one that playing the, the solo on She's Gone. We we had you know I mean uh, the list goes on and on. Pancho Morales and, uh, on on percussion and Richard T on piano played some piano and so uh, Pat Ribolo played organ and uh, I mean it was just on and on. I mean every player was just uh, you know the best the best of the best in New York at the time. And so uh, by by him surrounding us and of course his string arrangements, a reef string arrangements, yeah, beyond reproach. I mean the guy was just incredible. And so, you know, he, um, he would let us do what we wanted to do to a certain point, And yeah. then he would always say in his Turkish accent, he would say, he would say, now I put on my producer's cap, which meant <laughs> now it was time to listen to him. Okay. Um, you know, so he'd let us go to a certain degree. When we, we go off the rails, he'd pull it back, you know? So what, what, kind uh, of, what kind of feedback would he actually give you at that point? He, he went over the songs with us, just the three of us in the studio. Um, we'd play the songs in a rough form. Yeah. And then he would make a chart, and then he would decide who the players would be for that song. And here again, very similar to what I, I spoke about earlier. On a song-by-song basis. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yep. There was, a core, there was a core rhythm section. Yep. Bernard Purdy was pretty much on every track except for one on the Abandoned Lungeonette album. Yep. Um, Jerry Murata, uh, Ricky Murata was the drummer on uh, Had I Known You Better Than. Uh, I don't know why, he just was. Okay. Um, maybe Bernard wasn't available. Now I'm up in the air with the rain in my hair. I got nowhere to go. I can go anywhere. It'll be alright when the morning comes. Just in passing, I'm not asking that you be the one with you. When you come home, try to come home alone. It's so much better with two. Now I'm out in Bernard Purdy, you know, it was. He was at the height of his powers, you know. And yeah. He was he was doing that thing where he set up the billboard in front of his kit that said "Pretty Purdy, the hit maker." And really? Had the Af- hey, oh yeah, he had a, he set up his own billboard <laughs> in front of his drum kit. That is awesome. His own advertisement. <laughs> it had like an it had like a it had like an outline of of Africa, you know, with the African flag colors, you know, and yeah. everything. Um, 
Yeah, and that guy, I mean, I, you know, to me, I've worked with a lot. I'm, I'm very, very picky about drummers because uh-huh. um, I've worked with the best. You know, I've worked with, you know, him and, you know, Mickey Curry and, you know, Jeff Baccaro and Ed Green and so on and so forth. So I'm, I'm really picky about it. But the one thing I always, you know, know that when, when we were doing those sessions, there was no question about tempo or anything like that. He would count, he, we'd play him the bare bones of the song. Yeah. He would count it off and wherever he counted it off was exactly where it should have been. Really? <laughs> there was no, not even a, a question about it. There was no, and, there was no click tracks in those days, I guess. Right. It's not. No. Yeah. Everything not. we, everything we played and we played and sang everything. And, you know, and I mean, for me, you know, I'll still use a click track if it's necessary, if it's, if it's, you know, going to help us in post-production with editing and things right. like that. That. But for the most part, you know, we don't play anything. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, so you mentioned Arif doing the string arrangements. Was that something that you guys were involved in, or did he just sort of vanish off into a room and do this? Um, no, we we talked okay. it over. We talked it over, and he would he would t- tell us, you know, kind of how he was hearing things, like what type of ensemble he did. He do the arrangement for "She's Gone" because that's a killer. Of course, he did yeah. the arrangements for everything. Oh, it's beautiful. One thing that you mentioned in your book about that song was that you you felt like with 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 that tune that it really kind of personified the way that the band was at the time and and the the direction that you were that you were going in is that something that you feel strongly about like that song like really kind of encapsulates that time for you well it was it was a, it was a very equitable um collaboration between me and Daryl um i wrote the chorus he wrote the verse what was the process like for actually writing it did you do it together well we both it... wrote we both wrote both um, okay I came up with the idea for the chorus. He came up with the idea for the verse, and then we both pulled it together. Um, we wrote that song in about an hour and a half. Uh, we just wrote it. I mean, it came out exactly the way. The only thing that we didn't do at the exact writing time was the was the half step modulation, mm-hmm. uh, the series of modulations, which was a reef a reef idea. He wanted. Uh, he felt the song was very powerful, and he felt it was going to be the the standout song on the album. And he wanted to make it majestic, and he wanted a, a kind of a he wanted he wanted something that would take the song and lift it. And um, he, it was his idea to modulate, you know, four times, which is very unique. And because I always joke about it, you know, and Daryl and I got all our modulations out in one song. We, <laughs> you never had to do it again. I don't think we ever had a modulation in a song <laughs> after that. Wow, even uh, working with uh, with David Foster, you never modulated. No. Wow. No. <laughs> You're right about that. They, yeah, they, the king of the modulation. made those first couple records with with a reef and um i mean they're super cool records and they sound amazing but they didn't like launch you guys into the stratosphere really um was it a was there pressure from atlantic to like write some hits or anything like that or like how no how it was no nope. you know it, interestingly enough we we were signed at, at during an era when record labels signed artists because they thought they had 
long careers. There, there was the potential for a long career. Imagine the that. motivation to sign an artist was, is this an artist who can evolve and develop and have a long career and we can take advantage of the long career? That was the way record companies thought. That was the mindset. Completely 180 degrees yeah. from today's yeah, mindset. Yeah, no doubt. Obviously. So we were very fortunate. They, they signed us because they thought we were good and that we could yeah. get better. Um, and that's what happened. Unfortunately for us, well, fortunately and unfortunately, we didn't feel like we wanted to be pigeonholed into a certain type of sound. We didn't want to do a band function at two. Um, and we had, we, we, had, we had moved to New York and we got involved with the downtown New York scene, which was very, was kind of getting in the 70s. It was like the New York Dolls were starting, Patti Smith. Oh man, what a scene that must have been. Group television. We were involved with all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and it kind of it kind of filtered over to our thinking, our way of thinking. We wanted, and we had gone on tour behind uh, the first two albums in a very acoustic kind of uh, ensemble, and we we really felt like we wanted to be more aggressive. It, we felt the acoustic thing wasn't translating live, right. and so we hooked up with Todd Rundgren and we did War Babies, which, you know, in retrospect, I you know I, I would have preferred to stay with Arif and seeing where that that relationship would have taken us, mm-hmm. but. The Todd thing, in a sense, opened a door to an experimental and more hardcore side that we could later incorporate into our music. And right. if you really, if you look at what we ended up doing and the sound that we ended up creating, it's really an amalgamation of of, the, of what we did with Aretha and what we did with Todd. And you combine those things together, and then it became this kind of rock and soul thing that we right. were able to own. Yeah. There's one last show before the glory ends There in the wings waits his only friend The record that is played to over and over Can't stop the music or remember the ending to his song You played it much too long Whose idea was it to work with Todd Rundgren? It was more Daryl's idea. It was more Daryl's idea. Okay. And was he just somebody that you had been hanging out with in New York and, and was kind of inspired? No. Well, Todd, Todd was from Philadelphia. Oh. Oh, okay. So did you go way back yeah, with him? Todd, no. We, we knew of Todd. Todd, Todd was in the... In, when Todd was in Philadelphia, he was in a different uh, musical world. He was, he was in this kind of um, English rock band uh, scene that was very kind of a small Philadelphia scene. Not, not the R&B scene that Daryl and I were in. Okay. But we knew of him, and yeah. uh, we knew he had moved to New York, and he had become fairly successful as a, you know, an artist and a producer. And we wanted to do something that was, you know, we wanted to break out of wherever we were. So we gave it a shot with him, and it was very experimental and very psychedelic and very, you know, kind of throw caution to the wind kind of thing. So what were the and, what were the sessions actually like with him? Like what what how what was a day in the studio like with Rundgren at that time? This was seventy seventy four. Well, when I said psychedelic, that's exactly what I meant. <laughs> you can take that however you want. Okay. Um, uh, and uh, there was new musicians, you know, yeah. uh, a lot of pro- prog rock type people, um, like uh, uh, people who eventually we co-opted into our band, people like John Siegler and Willie Wilcox, drummer uh-huh. and bass player, who eventually played with us as well. And it became this kind of amalgamation of, uh, you know, uh, of, it got much more um, 
music prog rock i i guess is the best way to describe it yeah and uh and then you know that didn't feel 100% comfortable either so in the following album which was the silver album we went out to LA to record that with a guy from Philadelphia named Christopher Bond yeah. who was who had been in our guitarist. band yeah yeah he was in our band and um he had gone out to LA and became a, a you know really successful studio musician and producer and he really had the LA scene. And if you look back at the mid 70s, LA, the LA recording scene was really at, at its height. You know, the best studios, the, a lot of the best players, yeah. a lot of the great records were coming out of that. And so we, you know, we said, hey, we got nothing to lose. We got three albums, none of which did very well. Um, what do we have to lose? Let's give it a try something new. So we went out there and we put ourselves in his hands. And here again, he surrounded us with the great players. Uh, you know, we had Lee Sklar on bass. Yeah. Uh, you know, all sorts of... And Jim Gordon on drums, right? Jim Jim Gordon. <laughs> yeah, we did. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know uh, anything about Jim Gordon? I do. I know. I, I know. I mean, I he's one of the greatest you know the drummers of all time. And he also killed his mother. So Yeah, I know. I know. It, it, was, a, it, was, a, it was that period. It was the 70s in L.A. You know, I mean... Look back on, you know, we were hanging out at the Troubadour with, with Linda Ronstadt and Glenn Fry and those guys and Jackson Brown. And, you know, so it was that whole period. So we, we you know, we went, uh, dove in to the L.A. 70s scene. With did, you, did you move there at that point? Or? Oh, yeah, we lived, we lived there while we were recording. Okay. Um, but our lives were, we either were recording or touring. There was no in-between. Okay. So I wouldn't say we lived in L.A., but yet we did. Um, we, for three years in a row, we rented houses. And we all kind of lived together, even with some of our band guys. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it was that kind of era, you know, that kind of post hippie kind of thing. And and was and, the uh, was the process of recording changing for you guys? Like, were you recording less live? And... No, it was exactly the same. Okay, cool. Fill the fill the room with great musicians and play the song. Aside from Jim Gordon and Lee Sklar, who else was involved in the Silver record? Uh, well, Ed Green. Okay. Um, Ed Green played drums on. I believe he played on Sarah Smile. Um, we had a, I can't, we had a, another piano player came in and played a few things, but Daryl played most of the piano. Right. Um, Chris played most of the lead guitars, almost all. Uh, and, uh, he also did arrangements and we had, uh, actually we had, um, um, who, uh, who's the, who's the piano player in, um, the basic main guy in Toto. Okay. Um, anyway, his father did the, a lot of the string arrangements for us. Wow. Um, yeah, very famous, very famous string arranger. And, you know, in L.A., of course, because of the movie theaters, you know, had the movie uh, business had great, great, uh, you know, classical players. Um, so the string players were fantastic. Top notch. Yeah, so we did uh, we did album and we had, uh, we released a couple singles, none of which they did okay. They went into the top 40 and then Sarah Smile broke out uh, quite by accident. Won't you smile and laugh for me, Sarah? If you feel like leaving, you know 
you can go But why don't you stay until tomorrow If you wanna be free Then we started a run in the 70s with Sarah Smile She, uh, rich girl, and then She's Gone got re-released Oh, it came out, like, did you re-record it? No, it came. It got re-released three times. Really? Um, Atlantic was trying to. They had it, so they felt they felt that after the success of she of Rich Girl and and Sarah, Sarah Smile, Smile, they released yeah. She's Gone, and it actually became a hit. Crazy. Uh, and and you're still on Atlantic at this point? Uh, no, we oh. had, no we we actually left Atlantic after the first two albums, the the War Babies. Uh, no, we did War Babies on Atlantic, and then after that we left. So starting with the Silver album is when we were on RCA. Oh, so you're on RCA. Okay. And, and was that a label that was nurturing and stuff as well? Or were they like, what was the scene? There was, with no, RCA? No, there was, there was no nurturing. Really? There was no nurturing. We had nothing to do with the label. We wow. made the records the way we want. We get, we got a budget. Our manager negotiated a budget. We yeah. had the money. We went and did exactly what we wanted to do. And then we handed them a record. Without being too crass, what was a budget for a record in those days in LA in the eighties? Like, <laughs> whatever it took for us to make it <laughs> <laughs> like was there a limit or would they just be no like, no there shit. was no limit oh my god so how long would you spend on a record about about a month oh that's pretty reasonable yeah, yeah. okay there's also a great story in your book around that time of george harrison dropping in i think he plays on um yeah uh, i i i met george through some of my motor racing friends through jackie stewart and uh some people and friends of mine from england and uh, George was living in L.A. at the time, and um, we hung out at the races and did some things. And then George invited me and Daryl over to see the the Ruddles movie at his house. Awesome. And so, so we went over there and did that. And then we asked him if he wanted to play on the record. Um, this was later, though. This was a record that we did called Long the Red Legend 77. Oh, okay. And uh, George was cool. He just he didn't want any special treatment. We said, yeah, what do you want to do, man? You want to play you know, some solos? He goes, no, no, no. I do. He said, I just want to be in the band. I said, okay. <laughs> and so he just, vibe. He play, yeah, he played acoustic guitar um, on a couple tracks. So it was very, very casual. You're making these records. And, and then, like, at, at what point did things just go bananas for you guys? Like, was there a... Well, that was the eighties, you know, that was, that was the eighties. It was, you know, we basically, after the David Foster, we produced two records with him and he, uh, he wanted to keep recording in LA. We didn't want to do that. We wanted to record in New York. So we parted ways and we just said, you know what, it's time for us to just make our own records. And yeah. so we did that with the voices album and the rest was history, you know? Right. Right. You played live aid, right? Yep. Yeah. We headlined it. We, it was in Philadelphia. We were at the height of our popularity um, we were asked to close the show with, um, and Mick Jagger at the time had a solo album out, and so he didn't have a band. And so he asked us if we would back him up, uh, and we said yes. And uh, they, he said he was going to bring Tina Turner out as a special guest. Sure. And uh, we rehearsed his songs. We rehearsed once with him at, at Studio Instrument Rentals in, in New York. Uh, and we brought out Eddie Kendrick and David Ruffin, to reprise what the show that we did at the Apollo theater with them. Amazing. And, uh, we closed the show and that was it. And Mick came out and he pulled Tina Turner's skirt off. And of course, <laughs> you know, that was all that stuff. It's all, it's all documented. It's yeah, all there. Yeah. What's in the future for you then, as far as like, like, obviously you've got, um, this live record coming out and, uh, you said you've got a, a bunch of other stuff happening uh, yeah. this year. Well, the live, the live album I'm really excited about because we, 
I brought the band together, the exact same, you know, the Good Road Band, the same group, the same guys that, that recorded the Arkansas album. I knew it was going to be difficult to get everybody together, you know, all the time. I managed to get them together at the Station Inn on January, right before the pandemic hit. And I'm so glad because we captured this amazing moment. Mm-hmm. And um, Cal Muskie mixed it and it sounds incredible. And it's coming out in late September. Uh, so it's called, you know, John Oates Good Road Band Live in Nashville. And um, so I'm very excited about that. I'm putting yeah. the videos together now and doing, we're doing all the prep work for the release of that. And then I'm also working on this amazing new movie. Um, oh. I wrote, wrote a title song for, uh, and, and a few other songs for this movie called Gringa, which is coming out. It's a great, great movie. Um, and I'm not sure when the movie will be released, but we're going to release a single uh, probably in late July for the, for the film. So, did you do the score for it too, or you just did? No, no, not the score. Just wrote. So okay. far, I've got three songs in the movie, um, two of which are vying for the title to be kind of the title track. So, uh, very exciting to be doing a, that kind of project, and um, that's uh, that's keeping me real busy. Are Are you thinking about gigs and stuff again, or is that not really opening up for you? Uh, well, Daryl and I, you know, Daryl and I would have been on a forty city tour as we speak. Um, yeah, so. We don't know what we're going to do. We're going to hopefully re- 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 resume touring in 21 the fall. Okay. Okay. Cool. Well, that's exciting, man. Um, thank you so much for for talking about all this stuff with me. I, yeah, we covered a lot. We did. Well, thanks, Steve. Appreciate it, man. Thanks, man. I appreciate you too. All right. Bye bye. All right. Take care. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was my conversation with John Oates. It was great to have him here on the show. Hope you enjoyed it. And we will return in a few weeks. I'm not sure how many weeks exactly, but uh, I just need to get my head straight and get moved. So I need a little bit of time here to catch up. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening. And we'll see you very soon for season five of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Over and out. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers.